0: As we continue to uh, walk the Samadhi Trail, I'd like to have us explore that trail a little bit more and then bring us back a little bit. I was gonna say, uh, using some of the language of the southern mountain trails where i spend a lot of time, we'll mosey on back (laughs) to where the Vipassana trail takes off. This will probably be the last that I speak with those metaphors. Another way to say this is I'd like to talk about... i like to talk about uh, concentration practice and its relationship to insight practice. And I'm doing that in the uh, context of an option for practice, which we'll make a little bit clearer tomorrow. there will be an option, if we wish, to bring the developed relatively concentrated mind to insight practice. There's also the option of staying with concentration practice. But there will be those two options and you can choose the one that seems suitable, perhaps in discussion with uh, your teacher. And you may also wish to stay with concentration practice for the rest of the retreat, but have a sense of bringing concentration to insight practice at some time in the future. So what I'd like to do is to first talk a little bit more about concentration practice, some of what we've developed, some of the qualities we've developed, talk also about the limits of concentration practice, how it's helpful and what its limits are. And this will give us some of the understanding of why that combination of concentration practice and insight practice is important and crucial, actually. And I'll talk generally some about insight practice in the context of concentration practice, and then spend the bulk of the time exploring really the content of insight practice, what we examine, where insight practice explores and how we, how we develop in that practice and how concentration plays a very crucial role. So first, on the nature of concentration practice as we've been developing it, it's important to see that we've, in a way, been developing a kind of um, one-pointed concentration, with, as we sometimes say, with stillness, with uh, one object. And with insight practice, we will, as it were, develop that kind of um, concentrated awareness with movement, with changing, with changing objects. In concentration practice, we just stay, most of us, uh, with the breath. And we use the breath and the relative stillness of the object, even though there's, there's some movement, but the way that we can just stay with the same object, we use that as a, really a training ground for developing stillness of awareness. And then, of course, you'll see we'll transfer that stillness of awareness to changing objects. That's the direction. And it's actually in the shift of that concentrated mind to changing objects that we actually develop uh, the core insights that are freeing. So we've been developing, and all of us have developed to, um, to a significant degree, qualities of uh, stability of mind Uh, relaxation of mind, relaxation of body. In the text on concentration, there's a word that's used that uh, the mind becomes malleable. It's not fixed, it's not rigid. It becomes able to uh, really have a quality of, um, really a, a kind of softness the kind of um, flexibility. We develop that. We stay on the breath and we learn how to be less reactive with what might come up. And we have this quality of really being able to increasingly be with the object just with a steady mind that doesn't particularly like this or not like this, react, have preferences, and so forth. And as we uh, go deeper, there can be uh, a development of um, confidence and even faith. You know, as I was mentioning the other night, we can actually have faith that the hindrances are indeed impermanent that they are not the only exception to the truth of impermanence. anicca <laughs> <laughs> Sankara. they are all impermanent. And we we also can have some degree of faith and confidence develop about the the possibilities of our being, the possibilities of our mind. Amazing that we can actually come to this quality of peace or whatever Whatever level we found, I know that each of us have found uh, more peace than there might have been, certainly at the beginning. And for many of us, more peace than we have found um, in our lives, for many of us. And that we can have the awareness, the attention, move out of the old habits and reactivities to some extent and sometimes to a large extent. And it's helpful when we we are looking again at some of the nature of concentration to remember that we are cultivating concentration, again, in the context of a path of liberation, and that we speak of right concentration or mature concentration and that this is really linked with the other factors, that, that we really require the ethical guidelines that really support our container, You know that we really require that support to go more deeply in concentration. F- from the Buddha, what is noble right concentration with its supports and its requisites? That is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness. Unification of mind equipped with these seven factors is called noble right concentration with its support and requisites. So all of these factors are linked. We're not just focusing on concentration by itself, all of these are related. You know, we've often talked about how really to practice concentration. We need a very significant amount of mindfulness. We need to be mindful uh, what we're doing. We need to be mindful that we are actually following the practice, that we are coming back to the breath. We need uh, mindfulness to be able to know that we are connecting with the breath, to know know that we are uh, staying with the breath. we need mindfulness to know when we're not on the breath. It's mindfulness that brings us back. And so you can get a sense of how concentration doesn't just work by itself, but there's really mindfulness here uh, all the time that's working. You know, concentration by itself doesn't notice when we're off the breath. It's really that factor of mindfulness that's associated with it. And so we, we've we uh, talked about these different kinds of concentration that develop. Uh, we've talked about the deepening of concentration to the point of what's called access or neighborhood concentration. We, we looked at the different states of uh, deeper concentration, deeper absorption uh, last night, the jhanas. We've looked at some of the wonderful qualities of concentration, and yet there are also limits to concentration. There are limits to concentration practice, really, when it's not connected with insight practice and actually with all the the factors of the path. Uh, Andrea uh, talked uh, several nights ago about the actual story of the Buddha, that the Buddha started out in his practice by studying with two teachers who were teachers of concentration. Uh, The first one was a teacher of the first seven jhanas and the second one taught the eighth jhana. (laughs) And so the Buddha studied those and he hung out a lot uh, in those concentrated states. He, He said later, concentration through breathing when developed and cultivated, is of great fruit and benefit. I too, before my enlightenment, while I was still a bodhisattva, not yet fully enlightened, (laughs) generally dwelt in this dwelling (laughs) that he he hung out there. And as as Andrea uh, pointed out, he was not satisfied that the concentrated states, although bringing incredible peace and bliss, were not adequate to his quest. They did not bring him the kind of uh, peace and the kind of understanding and the kind of release that he was seeking. They still seemed to be dependent on conditions and um, impermanent, basically. They they did not take him, he thought, to the end of suffering. If those conditions were not there, there might still be suffering. And that's really related to the ways that for us uh, concentration can have its limits, Um, that we can, uh, when we get more concentrated, even though there's a lot of purification going on, there are ways that concentration can not necessarily um, uproot the hindrances, but they merely, uh, concentration merely covers them over or temporarily suppresses them. And I often would find this when I came home from retreats. (laughs) I remember very well being in wonderful concentrated states and thinking that the the end of the path was near and coming home and immediately having a big fight with my roommate. So some hindrances were not quite dealt with, and as long as I didn't assume that my roommate was the hindrance, <laughs> um, but many of us, many of us find that we find that we, and we f- may sometimes find that at the end of the retreat, my personality has come back. Oh my gosh! <laughs> you no, know, I remember there was one end of a retreat where. Uh, I I remember a retreat I think uh, in in, uh, San Rafael at Santa Sabina, and it was a retreat. I think Jack Kornfield was teaching along with several others, and he looked over the group of retreatants at the end, and everyone was so peaceful, and there was just a a beautiful quality of concentration, and he said, you look so beatific. Of course, you haven't opened your mouths yet. In other words, another way we could say this is that concentration practice by itself doesn't necessarily transform ignorance. Again, there are certain things that happen along the way or with the practice that we we call purification. I think there can be some very uh, powerful transformative practice there, but there is that potential for concentration practice simply to temporarily suppress our bad habits. And that's important to know. And even some of the states that are quite uh, wonderful and, and peaceful can have their aspects which can involve some degree of suffering. You know, that we've talked, Philip talked last night about how certain states of um, piti or some the, the energy in one 's body can sometimes be quite uncomfortable, and even some of the the uh, ways that we develop the five janic janic factors, the connecting sustaining, and so forth, can involve some degree of um, clinging or straining or some way that' we're, that we're not fully in balance you know and so there we Really want to look towards? Are there ways that we can uproot those kinds of uh, ignorance, or the the roots, really the roots of suffering, or the roots of strain? And this really is to follow the uh, path of the Buddha, who wanted to find a peace that actually was not found in concentration practice. And he said that that there is another way to develop. And this is really what he did in his own life, that he, at this key moment, he moved away from the ascetic practices that he was doing. He took more nutriment. His body came back to health. And at a certain point, he sat down and he first went through the jhanic states into very concentrated states. And then he turned his awareness to be able to look at phenomena, to look at changing phenomena, and to be able to see through, ultimately, the roots of ignorance, and to see through that which stood in the way of peace. And this was really his enlightenment experience. This is what he came to. And so it's that possibility of using a very concentrated mind to see clearly our changing experience that is the reason that we don't just stay hanging out in these beautiful states. I know I originally thought that hanging out in beautiful states was the path, the full path, and that uh, my problems would mysteriously disappear the more I stayed in these beautiful states. But we, we can see, again, if we go back and forth, we can notice from our own experience that there needs to be some other uprooting of what causes ignorance. And this is really why we move away from these beautiful states and just hanging out in them. This is why that we open ourselves up to changing phenomena, which sometimes brings uh, a little more gross mind, sometimes gets us back into our habit patterns, sometimes takes us into suffering. It's why, uh, to use a a term that Philip uses sometimes, we trade sukha for dukkha. (laughs) We move away from that resting in the peace and the bliss, and we're willing to open ourselves and make ourselves vulnerable to changing experience. And yet, the concentrated mind permits us to see things that we wouldn't see otherwise. And the training that we've had permits us to look in ways that we couldn't look without that concentrated mind. And so we move from the concentration with stillness, with one object, we move to concentration with a changing object. We're still continually developing the factors of connecting, sustaining, and the ways that, the continued development of concentration brings the piti, the, the sukha, the one-pointedness. Essentially, what happens when we, when we take our concentrated mind and bring it to changing experience, the concentrated mind essentially lets us see through our, ha- our habits. It helps us to see through our habits, to see through our constructions, and to be with experience more directly in a way which frees us from our confusion. That's the short version. We cut through our habits and constructions because of the concentrated mind, and without that concentrated mind, we can't do it. We are more the prey of our habits and constructions. And in particular, we see how we tend to not see change. We tend to not see the impermanence of things and we tend to fixate on aspects of experience and take them to be permanent. And I'll get more into that. A second major way we do this is that we believe that grabbing hold of aspects of our experience, whether it's a taste, a smell, a particular experience, a person, you know, a job, whatever, we cling onto that as if that would make us happy. And we push away what we think will make us unhappy. And we don't see how the deepest happiness is about actually being with the flow without clinging and without fixating. And this is what we learn when we bring our concentrated mind to experience because we learn how to be in a much more direct way with the flow of impermanence, with change, with being experienced, with less clinging, less pushing away in a compulsive way. And it's really what the training is that we do here. And we also see how we construct a kind of self in relationship to our experience. We do have a kind of laboratory here where we study that. We study how we construct the self and we have preferences and we choose rather than simply being with the flow of experience. In other words, we particularly develop insight into impermanence, into the nature and roots of suffering, and into the quality of experience not having a fixed self. Another way to say this was said by um, Wes Nisker. He says you have to study and find out that first, life is hard. It'll put you through the changes but don't take it personally. And so essentially what we do in our practice to really, again, to simplify, is we, from a concentrated mind, we look closely at experience and see where we have fixations, to see where we fix experience, to see where we grab hold of experience, and we study that over and over again. And it's not really possible unless the mind is concentrated to some extent. from the second century Buddhist philosopher Nargajana, fixations spawn thoughts that provoke compulsive acts. Another way of saying it is that we don't perceive accurately the change and the flow of things. And on the basis of that, we tend to distort experience. We project onto it or we select or we construct things. And then on the basis of our selections and constructions, rather than be with the flow of experience, we develop all sorts of thoughts. And we uh, think a lot. We think about and develop all sorts of complicated thoughts based on our misperceptions. And then we live in that kind of thought bubble. This is called ordinary life. (laughs) And so it's actually a pretty radical challenge when you think about it. It's really a challenge to look carefully and to move outside of constructions and habits. Our main tool in our insight practice is mindfulness. And here we'll, you know keep Going the kind of practice of mindfulness that we've de- been developing in conjunction with concentration practice. And the mindfulness, when we turn it to changing phenomena, helps us to first uh, know what we're doing, to be really clear that I am tracking changing phenomena, that I am noticing changing phenomena. Mindfulness helps us to be present with and connect with the object. That's again the factor of uh, Vitaka. It helps us to stay uh, with the object. Again, we can benefit by that relaxed attention. We can stay with the objects. And again, the concentrated mind lets us stay with the flow of experience more readily. This is a text from the uh, second century. Mindfulness as a mental factor signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present. It has the characteristic of not wobbling, that is not floating away from the object. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. And again, in order to be mindful, we need that degree of concentration in which the hindrances are generally at bay. And really to track experience, we need that same kind of concentrated presence so that we are not reactive to the flow of experience. We need a certain amount of ability to persevere, to stay with, to have the energy to keep on looking. Really the same kind of energy which lets us keep coming back to the object. I would also say that, that mindfulness, even though it's often not, not very often talked about, needs to have also that quality of care. You know, that when we're tracking phenomena, can we bring in that quality of metta in a way or even, even the way that for some of us, being with the breath was like being with a friend. And there's a way in which mature mindfulness has, has a quality of the heart. It's very much like when we are really giving attention to a friend or to someone in our family, there's care there, that attention attention goes hand in hand with care, and this is also something that we can cultivate. So we ground in the concentrated mind and we turn our attention Towards, uh, towards our experience. And we, one way of practicing is to look specifically when we are tracking experience at impermanence, at any ways that we uh, uh, grasp on or push away compulsively onto experience, which we understand from the teaching of the Four Noble Truths is the root of suffering. And then we also look at any constructions of self. And this is what we'll be inviting in a way with our practice tomorrow, that we take the concentrated mind and we actually direct it in a certain way. We say, look for how things are changing. We say, track whenever you fixate or grab or push away compulsively, notice that. We say, track when a sense of self arises, look for that. You know? And this can be a very powerful practice from a fairly quiet mind really just being with phenomena and mostly having enough concentration so we look for when we get lost or stuck. This actually describes a large amount of my own practice. Really just looking, okay, just hanging out relatively, relatively content, you know, relatively content, just looking at experience. Oh, there's a fixation, okay. Maybe a little different... Tone, but <laughs> you, know, uh, you know oh there 's a fixation, or it could be that tone, it could be oh there 's that fixation Rah! that shouldn 't be i shouldn 't be fixating like that, you know, and we it 's actually for me a very, very exciting kind of practice because it 's like noticing over and over again where the mind gets stuck, and this is a lot of our insight practice when we stay with impermanence, and some of it. Sometimes we have to work up to that to really be with the flow of experience and just tune into that more. And because the mind has to be fairly quiet to really have the the more compulsive states or fixed states or the sense of self really really be noticed, like this big blip on the radar. You know, the mind has to be quiet to notice that. And so I want to talk a little bit uh, in a little more detail about how we can be with these three aspects of experience, impermanence and the nature and roots of suffering, and also the quality of looking for when there is a self that arises and really exploring the teaching on not-self. So I wanna do that some and then also talk about how the practice can also go to even more subtle levels. And there's another teaching Called the teaching of the three subtle characteristics. The three characteristics that are not so subtle, I guess, are, the, are impermanence, suffering, and not self. So there's a further teaching which goes a little, even a little bit deeper, called the three subtle characteristics. And I'll, I want to speak briefly about that because it can give you maybe some energy. And for me, it's actually uh, exciting to share to share this exploration because this is really actually, what I'll be, what I'm talking about here is really exactly how I practice. You know, this is the nature of my own personal practice that whether it's a shorter retreat, generally, or a longer retreat, you know, sometimes it could be a month or it could, be, it could be two weeks or it could be something like that. My general sequence is this. I first work with concentration practice. And do that for a certain proportion of the time depending on on how concentrated i would get but so for example last march i did a month retreat and i did 8 days of concentration practice and then i started bringing in metta and i was doing a retreat here and i i liked i liked to do metta at the meals Um, and do metta for myself and others. I was actually staying in my room, so that was the main time I saw people. So I would do concentration practice primarily by myself and then start bringing in metta practice just at the meals. And otherwise, I started bringing in um, insight practice with the three characteristics. And we did that for four or five days after that. And then, uh, then further opened to something like the three subtle characteristics, particularly working for the last two weeks with a kind of open awareness. It was a kind of practice where if my mind would be uh, not concentrated enough to look at, really accurately, at the changing phenomena, I would come back and, and come back to concentration practice. And so for me, it's a, it was a, it's a very, very fruitful um, trajectory of practice that has worked really wonderfully for me. And we're doing a version of this, or at least offering that option um, these last two days of the retreat if if you want to do that. And for many of you, it'll be perfectly suitable to just stay with concentration practice. So a little bit about the three characteristics about impermanence, suffering, and not self, and how we practice with them. So impermanence is taught typically on several levels. On on a more gross level, it's something we can see in terms of changing seasons, the changes of nature, the changes of society, and so forth. And it's, it's, it's both obvious and something that we maybe take for granted. In Dharma teachings, we're especially asked to look at this gross level of impermanence in terms of the impermanence of me and to actually take that at times as something to really contemplate more fully as a basis for having some maybe greater prioritizing of what's important in my life, and particularly this practice of purification and liberation. And there also are more subtle levels of looking at impermanence, where we Where particularly concentration comes in, so we can bring the concentrated mind to the flow of phenomena, and we can really just tune in to the way things are changing. We may start, for example uh, to have less of a um, abrupt change from our practice we may we may instead of being with the breath as uh, as something that really represents stillness we we shift a little bit. And we can be with the breath as a changing object, where there we're a little bit more tuning in to the changes of the breath. And we tune in and see, oh, yeah, the breath is going here, it's going there, it's going there, it's going there. And we can also then bring that understanding of um, change and look at other parts of our experience. We can notice the changes of thoughts. We can notice and study emotions. We can bring our mindfulness to notice the changes when we open our eyes and are with the the external phenomena. And we can do that increasingly with a concentrated mind where we really stay, in a sense, with the changing phenomena and don't so much hook in to the concepts about phenomena. I think we've all learned that, that we can be with the uh, phenomena of breath, without necessarily staying with the concept of breath, where we can we can be with the experience of, um, let's say, my hand feeling sensations. You know, place your hand maybe on your knee, and you can feel the sensations and tune into the sensations without uh, being focused on the concept of hand. And what we do there when we tune into impermanence is we try to just stay with the more direct experience of change, and we watch when we fixate for some reason. And it's a little easier to do when our eyes are closed and we're with inner experience. There's something also about the eyes which tends to objectify very easily when we look outwardly. And so some of the training in impermanence is actually to learn to be with the eyes open and see impermanence without going immediately to the concepts of things. Generally speaking, this practice with the concentrated mind does take us beyond the concepts and constructions and the ordinary constructs of life. And it lets us see more the constituents of experience. It's almost like we are instead of being taken in by a movie with its 24 frames a second, we actually notice the individual frames and we're not taken in by the illusion of the film. Something like that happens when we really tune in to the flow of impermanence. When the mind can get quiet, it can tune in like that. And we can uh, actually get very quiet and notice the rapid change of phenomena. Sometimes we can notice the change being almost uh, microscopic. The mind can be very quiet and we just notice a bunch of fleeting phenomena. And yet we, we stay with the flow and we see where we, we see where we get stuck or we see where we get fixed. And so this is a a powerful way of practice with the concentrated mind. When the mind gets very quiet with phenomena, it's both amazing and we can see that rush of phenomena. It can be scary. You know, we're saying, hmm, I kind of believed in the reality of everything and the constructed world and and I'm being showed a, a different kind of experience, right? And I know for for myself, when I was first starting to see, and you may have had similar experiences, starting to see the impermanence and the rapid change which can be there with the concentrated mind, I was saying, like, whoa, (laughs) whoa, whoa. And this is a a time for having friends, having good teachers, doing metta, (laughs) you know, grounding in the body and so forth, you know. But there can't, just to say that when we actually see deeply into phenomena, there can be fear that arises. There can be fear when we see closely into impermanence. There can be fear when we look and see that grabbing hold or pushing away things is not gonna bring happiness. And we say, oh my gosh, then what is gonna bring happiness? Whoops. (laughs) There goes, there goes, 20 or 30 or 40 years of life strategy, (laughs) right? Oops. And that can be a little bit scary or disorienting. So just to say that, that that's there. (laughs) So the second uh, area we look at, we we talk about is seeing dukkha or we talk about is seeing, uh, particularly where we grab hold compulsively or push away phenomena. And again, we can set ourselves up with this flow of experience, we can be with the impermanent flow and with the concentrated mind with insight practice, then we would really look, okay, let me just set my radar up to track where there's gonna be a grabbing hold or a pushing away. And we do that, we can do that in retreat as a kind of training. And, And then we can bring that increasingly into daily life. You know, and probably many of us do that with certain kinds of grabbing hold or pushing away. In daily life we notice that and we say, oh, I'm grasping after that, right? I'm grasping, we we do that. Here we're being asked to do that on an even more uh, subtle level, to really track with the concentrated mind the flow of experience and to see where we are fixing, where we are grabbing hold, where we are pushing away as if that's gonna bring us happiness. And again, the teaching will be that the deep roots of happiness are not in grabbing hold or pushing away, but rather in being with peace, with phenomena, and then out of our wisdom, making appropriate responses to the situation. But a lot of the actual meditative training is to just have us hang out with that flow and track where we get stuck, where we get fixed, where I grasp, where I push away compulsively, where I don't like that knee pain, where I don't like that emotion that surfaced, where I am impatient with uh, melodrama number three, which is appearing for the 130first time in this retreat. <laughs> and so, oh, you know, so we just noticed that, you know where we, we notice, you know, our, our storylines, where we notice where we get impatient. We notice our commentaries. We notice our self-judgments, right? This is what the second training is. We just track those things. We track self-judgments. We track judgments of others. We track our um, scary stories about something or other, and we just track those. We track where we, where we get off The last area that we study is the area that it would be called the area of uh, anatta or, or not-self. And, and in particular, in the context of the training for the concentrated mind, we study when the, when the mind surfaces, let's say, a thought that is the thought of a self where, where we have some kind of self-reference appears in our experience, where we have a thought uh, of what I will do next, my next concentration retreat, you know, or how I am doing well or how I am doing not well or uh, what I will do or some view. And we keep tracking that. You know, you know. really all of these trainings in these three areas are really twofold. On the one hand, we're tuning in to be able to be with experience without the fixation of thinking that something's permanent, grabbing hold or pushing away experience. We're having the sense of self arise in experience and we're learning to tune in to uh, experience without those qualities. On the other hand, we are continually noticing where we get stuck and this is this is the core of the practice really it's noticing over and over again and over time we learn you know sometimes we have to see the same pattern 2000 times that's probably optimistic <laughs> have you have you seen that and it's mysterious. The process to change is really mysterious. You know, it's like you can get, be totally stuck on the 1999th time. You see it for the 2000th time and suddenly, ah, release. And at the 1999th time, you have no idea what's going to happen. And then it's something shifts and you're in a way... Um, something got released, something got learned. It's mysterious like that. All of this is mysterious, which means, as we, I think I've often said, don't trust your own interpretations too much, especially when you're in the middle of a retreat. Don't trust your narratives too much, especially when you think you're um, doing real well or not doing well. Really, it's just to stay with it. It's good to have teachers and reference points, but be careful about the interpretations, partly because of the mystery of the process. It really is mysterious. And so we track all these constructions of self From, from Rilke, the poet, no one lives his or her life, disguised since childhood, haphazardly assembled from voices and fears and little pleasures, we come of age as masks. Somewhere there must be storehouses where all those lives are laid away like suits of armor, her old carriages, her clothes hanging limply on the walls, maybe all the past lead there to the repository of unlived things, the lives we didn't lead when we were taking on a mask. And of course we can see the self arising in concentration practice, can't we? I am a good meditator, I am a bad meditator, I do concentration practice well. Concentration practice isn't for me. <laughs> and so, you know, the story I told yesterday, not yesterday, two days ago, about uh, that, you know, my own uh, self image as a good meditator and how it was so confusing for me as a young meditator to know how. I could actually appear and be a good meditator because everything's kind of happening inside and you know there aren't little bubbles appearing above our heads with our great insights <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or you know probably someone's going to invent some way to actually broadcast our inner inner dialogue and you know have it have it out there but I couldn't really know and I I wanted to appear to be a good meditator and the only you know, the only criteria which occurred to me were to sit for a long time and to stay up late. And so I did those. <laughs> I chose those. And then I, I mentioned how uh, I really, you know, th- this was, I think this was in the, one of the examples of unskillful effort. Um, and um, then, I, then I would get sick. Then I got sick, actually. And I sat there with my sniffles, and I definitely interpreted that having a cold meant I was a bad meditator. See, so the self is kind of crude, right? <laughs> and I, I'm a bad meditator. And I sat there and I had to sit for like uh, probably about another 10 days being a bad meditator. Having wanted to be a good boy for all of my previous life. This led to a certain amount of deconstruction of personality. <laughs> Uh, because the the image and the reality did not jive, right? And sometimes, um, I don't know if anyone told me, ah, yes, you're going through purification. (laughs) But it was very painful. It's very scary, right? So again, there can be those moments of fear. That was very scary for me to watch my my sense of myself coming up against um, reality and the image not matching and to sit with that was hard, very hard. And there was something you know, about the support of the teachers and there was a fair amount of concentration. So I could actually study fear arising. I could study fear over and over again. And I could see it. And eventually, after having watched it enough, I came through, know, the, the insight came to the conclusion that actually I don't need to be afraid it was something, you know, some logic like if people are really wise and compassionate, it won't matter whether I have a cold. You know, like, duh, right? <laughs> but, you know, you know this, this is what we call yogi mind or the, the fevered mind of the meditator <laughs> you know, who is caught in some purification process. And so um, for me, it, was, it, it like took a week to come to that insight that it was okay to have a cold. <laughs> Meanwhile, my, I, I deconstructed the image, which I was um, quite grateful for, though it was scary, you know, because like, what's gonna take its place? You know, I didn't know, right? So, so again, this is what happens when we look closely like that. Nargajana, again, from the second century. What is inside is me. What is outside is mine. When these thoughts end, compulsion stops, repetition ceases, freedom dawns. And as we deepen into being with impermanence and being with and tracking when there's suffering, tracking when self arises, opening more to the experience, of the flow without that sense of self. We also deepen into what are sometimes called the three subtle characteristics, which are first, emptiness, second, tatata, or usually translated as suchness, and the third is called atamayata, which is, a, which is sometimes translated as uh, non-fashioning or non-identification. So I want to talk briefly about those because this represents a further deepening of just being with that concentrated mind with the flow of experience. You know, the the quality of emptiness is really an extension of impermanence. It's that we are with the flow of phenomena increasingly without taking any phenomena as being ultimately real as having some ultimate independent existence. And we increasingly open to the flow of experience with just that sense of continual change and movement. From the Buddha, this is how the training should be done Concerning the body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and liberation by wisdom. So we start to see more a whole web of continual phenomena arising and changing and being interconnected. One of the more accessible ways of talking about emptiness is talking about interdependence and seeing everything as interconnected and nothing as separate, you know, despite our concepts, which tend to see things as as separate. And so we can be with the flow of experience and notice a little blip and say, oh, that was my self-judgment story starting to appear. And we can notice that and notice it and not follow it and not get stuck and just notice the continual flow of phenomena, nothing taken as substantial or separate. And this is again a deepening that that we can touch as we go more deeply. is from the uh, Vasudhi which is a 5th century text. Mere suffering exists, but no sufferer is found. The deeds are, but there is no doer of the deeds. Nibbana is, but there is no person who enters Nibbana. The path is, but there is no traveler. No doer of the deeds is found, no one who ever reaps their fruits. Empty phenomena roll on, dependent on conditions all. And that's an experience which can be there when we turn that concentrated mind towards phenomena. And it's not the final word. (laughs) There's another perspective which is the second of these subtle dimensions and that is the dimension of tatat or tatata which is usually translated as suchness which is that It's in a way saying that emptiness tends to focus on the lack of substantiality. And it can possibly veer towards nihilism. Nothing exists, nothing matters. The second emphasizes more that there are things appearing. You know, that there is the sunset, that there is the full moon tonight, that there are the lizards doing push-ups you know, that there are the deer, that there are the turkeys, that we are here, that there is something happening. We don't necessarily think that this is all, you know, that we are all independent phenomena, but there's something occurring. And this is what that second dimension looks at. It's really in a way saying, yes, there is something happening. And yes, there is also in a sense everything that's happening is empty. A poem that brings this out was was a haiku written by Isa, who lived at the end of the uh, 18th century, beginning of the 19th century in Japan. And his uh, son died while he was young and he contemplated emptiness in the context of the death of his son. In other words, he contemplated emptiness and he also contemplated suchness at the same time. And he said, he wrote a very short haiku, and it went like this, this dewdrop world. And it's a reference to the Diamond Sutra, which says the world is like a dewdrop at dawn, meaning, really pointing to emptiness this dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. And yet, which really, it brings in compassion, actually. And it brings in a sense of, yes, that's true, but there's also another perspective. And then the last subtle characteristic is uh, called atamayata, which is literally means not made of that, and it's translated as a kind of uh, non-fashioning of objects and of self. And it points to a quality of awareness, which is, could be talked about as a kind of open awareness, which is there, but doesn't fixate on anything either internal or external. In the text, it's very close to the quality of the freedom of nibbana. It's a quality of this open, free awareness, without the constructions of the mind forming a self, an other, a subject, an object, and yet there's awareness. And this points to a yet deeper freedom I just wanted to mention these last, these last qualities. And we may do a guided meditation with that open awareness on Tuesday morning to explore that. And we'll be doing some practices tomorrow morning that can help us to explore the three characteristics, I I believe. Um, And so this this is the possibility of where a concentrated mind can go for the purposes of our own freedom. And some very practical ways that we can do that in this context of training, in this context of this very special environment where we have the potential, freed from daily responsibilities, to take the concentrated mind and look very carefully and closely into experience see where we get stuck, see how we can open up to the flow of experience, see how we can learn to do that, see how we can see over and over again, our fixations, our habits, our stuckness, and over time, release them, release them to develop a yet greater freedom And we do concentration practice in significant part because without that concentration practice, it's very hard to see through where we have these fixations, particularly more subtle ones. It's very hard to see how we can cut through our concepts, our habits, our constructions. And with the concentrated mind, we can do that much more readily. This is a core reason why we practice, because it's that way of cutting through constructions, habits, ways of seeing the world, that we get stuck, that are connected with suffering. And when we cut through those, we move towards greater freedom. close with a poem by uh, Pablo Neruda. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. One way to fish for fallen light would be to go out as you walk and contemplate with a concentrated mind the full moon, which has been specially arranged to be here. (laughs) Thank you very much for your kind attention.